Hello everyone and welcome to part 2 of my episode on the mysterious death of Princess Diana. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, I am your host and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Initial reports stated that Diana's car had collided with the pillar at 190 kilometers per hour, 120 miles per hour, and that the speedometer's needle had been jammed at that position. It was later announced that the car's speed upon collision was between 95 and 110 kilometers per hour, 59 to 68 miles per hour, about twice as fast as the speed limit of 50 kilometers per hour, 31 miles per hour. In 1999, a French investigation concluded a Mercedes had come into contact with another vehicle, a white Fiat Uno, in the tunnel. The driver of the Fiat was never conclusively traced, although many believe the driver was Lee Van Than. The specific vehicle was not identified. It was remarked by Robin Cook, the British Foreign Secretary, that if the crash had been caused in part by being hounded by paparazzi, it would be doubly tragic. Diana's younger brother, the Earl Spencer, also blamed tabloid media for her death. An 18-month French judicial investigation concluded in 1999 that the crash was caused by Paul, who lost control at high speed while intoxicated, which I have a lot of problem with that theory, and I don't think that that is exactly what contributed to death, but we shall continue. After 1998, it was theorised that there was an orchestrated criminal conspiracy surrounding the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Official investigations in both Britain and France found that Diana died in a manner consistent with media reports following the fatal car crash in Paris on the 31st of August 1997. In August of 1999, a French investigation concluded that Diana died as a result of a crash. The French investigator, Judge Herve Stephan, concluded that the paparazzi were some distance from the Mercedes S280 when it crashed and were not responsible. After hearing evidence at the British in a jury in 2008 returned a verdict of unlawful killing by driver Henri Paul and the paparazzi pursuing the car. The jury's verdict also stated, and I quote, In addition, the death of the deceased was caused or contributed to by the fact that the deceased were not wearing a seatbelt and by the fact the Mercedes struck the pillar in the Elma Tunnel rather than colliding with something else. End quote. Active in disputing the official version of events were the British tabloid newspaper The Daily Express and Egyptian businessman Mohammed Al-Fayed, whose son Dodi was Diana's partner at the time and also died in the crash. In 2001, Diana's butler, Paul Burrell, published a note that he claimed to have been written by Diana in 1995, in which there were allegations that her former husband was planning an accident in Diana's car, brake failure and serious head injury so that he could marry again. A special Metropolitan Police inquiry was established in 2004, Operation Pageant, headed by Commissioner John Stevens, to investigate the various conspiracy theories which led up to the British inquest. This investigation looked into 175 conspiracy claims that had been made by Al-Fayed. Among the witnesses questioned was Prince Charles, who in 2005 told Stevens that he did not know about his former wife's note from 1995 and could not understand why she had those feelings. Al-Fayed has persistently propounded that what were found to be conspiracy theories the inquest and has repeatedly claimed that he believes his son was murdered with Diana which technically I actually do believe that she may have been killed for many various reasons which we're about to go into. So now here are some of the conspiracy theories and some of the things that make people believe that there is a conspiracy theory behind Princess Diana's death. So we're going to start with Henry Paul and there were the security service connections. So theorists have alleged that the driver of the Mercedes-Benz W140 Henri Paul was in the pay of a national security service though different versions 
origins of the allegation named the country of the security service alternatively as Britain, France, or the United States. Evidence purported to support this arises mainly from money in his position at the time of his death and his personal wealth. These allegations are covered in Chapter 4 of the Operation Pageant Criminal Investigation Report. Mohammed Al-Fayed claims that Henri Paul was working for MI6 and that they set him up. The inquiry found no evidence Henri Paul was an agent for any security service. Now we come to the blood samples. Another allegation concerns the reliability of blood tests carried out, which indicated Paul had been drinking before he took control of the car. The French investigator's conclusion that Paul was drunk was made on the basis of the analyst of blood samples, which were said to contain an alcohol level that, according to Jay's September 1997 report, were three times the French legal limit. This initial analyst was challenged by a British pathologist hired by Al-Fayed. In response, French authorities carried out a third test, this time using the more medically conclusive vitreous fluid from inside the eye, which confirmed the level of alcohol measured by blood and also showed Paul had been taking antidepressants. It has been claimed that the level of alcohol reported to have been found in Paul's blood was inconsistent with his sober demeanour, as captured on the CCTV of the Ritz that evening. Professor Robert Forrest, a forensic pathologist, said that an alcoholic like Paul, with a high tolerance for alcohol, would have been able to appear more sober than he actually was. The families of Dodi Fayad and Henri Paul did not accept the findings of the French investigation. It was disclosed in 2006 that Lord Stevens had met with Paul's elderly parents, telling them that their son was not drunk. Just prior to Stevens appearing at that inquest, a source close to Stevens stated that this inconsistency could be explained as him being considerate and sensitive towards the elderly couple, an assessment Scott Baker suggested might be credible in his opening comments to the jury. Under cross-examination at that British inquest in 2008, Stevens denied deliberately misleading Paul's parents and said that the chauffeur's condition at the time of the crash did not match the police's definition of being drunk, which he said relied upon someone's physical responses. Stevens said that the available evidence suggested Paul had consumed only two alcoholic drinks, but this was not necessarily all that Paul had consumed, and that he was indeed under the influence of alcohol at the time of the crash. An expert cited in the report estimated that Paul had drunk the equivalent of five measures of Ricard, his favourite licorice-flavoured French drink, before driving. In two French tox lab tests, Paul was found to have 12.8% carbon monoxide hemoglobin saturation, which occurs when the blood's iron-carrying pigment is bound with carbon monoxide instead of oxygen. Smokers normally have about 10% of hemoglobin bound with carbon monoxide, so the results in Paul's case were not unusual. Paul had been smoking small cigarillo cigars in the hours before the crash. Another test backed by the opponents of the official findings showed Paul had a carbon monoxide hemoglobin saturation of 20.7% at the time of his death. That result, if accurate, combined with the rate of dispersal of carbon monoxide from the bloodstream, would have meant that Paul's blood had 40% saturation a few hours earlier, and he scarcely would have been able to function at all. In 2009, it was reported that DNA samples confirmed the blood samples with high alcohol levels were indeed from Paul. This was established by a comparison with samples provided by Paul's parents, demonstrating that the blood tester was out of Paul and that he had three times the French legal limit of alcohol in his blood. At this point, we're going to go into a little bit of conspiracy theory territory here, and this is where a lot of people think that Diana was actually killed. And the reason for that was because of a guy by the name of Richard Tomlinson. Now, he was a former MI6 officer who was dismissed from the intelligence services and later served five months in prison for breaching the Official Secrets Act of 1989. Claimed in a sworn statement to the French inquiry in May of 1999 that Britain's MI6 had been involved in the crash, suggesting the security service had documentation which would assist Judge Stefan in his inquiry. The previous August, he had been reported by the BBC to have claimed that Paul was working for the security services and that one of Diana's bodyguards, either Trevor Reese Jones, now known as Trevor Reese, or Kez Wingfield, was a contact 
kept for British intelligence. Tomlinson alleged that MI6 was monitoring Diana before her death, had told Mohammed Al-Fayed that Paul was an MI6 agent and that her death mirrored plans he saw in 1992 for the assassination of then-president of Serbia, Slobodan Misolovic. Using a strobe light to blind a chauffeur, I'm so sorry if I get the president of Serbia's name wrong, I, I deeply apologise for that. On the 13th of February 2008, Tomlinson told the inquest that he may have misremembered and that he had no evidence that Paul was an MI6 agent, but he had said in the previous day's court session that Paul was supplying MI6 with information. Speaking by video link from France, Tomlinson conceded that after the interval of 16 or 17 years, he could not remember specifically whether the document he'd seen during 1992 had in fact proposed the use of a strobe light to cause a traffic crash as a means of assassinating the president of Serbia. Although the use of lights for this purpose had been covered in his MI6 training, the Operation Pageant Inquiry was given unprecedented access to the offices of both MI5 and MI6 to investigate Tomlinson's claim. It was later revealed that the mentioned memo was a proposal written in March of 1993 to assassinate another Serbian figure if he gained power, not the current president. Furthermore, the plan did not involve anything about using flashlights. Further evidence discrediting Tomlinson's claims were found in drafts of a book he was writing about his time as an MI6 agent before he was jailed in 1998 for breaching the Official Secrets Act. The draft, dating from 1996, referred to the memo and contained none of the detail about a staged car crash with flashlights in a tunnel. The inquest was later told by an anonymous MI6 manager referred to during the proceedings as Miss X that MI5 were not keeping any file on either the Princess or Dodie and there was no plan involving them. The inquiry concluded by dismissing Tomlinson's claim as an embellishment. It went on to comment that this embellishment was largely responsible for giving rise to the theories Diana was murdered. Tomlinson was arrested by French authorities in July 2006 as part of their inquiry into the de death of Diana. French police were also reported to have seized computer files and personal papers from his home in Cairns. Now we move on to the relationship with Dodie Fayad. So one of the main motives which has been advanced for alleged murder includes suggestions Dinah was pregnant with Muhammad Dodi Fayad's child and the couple were about to get engaged. The alleged dislike of the idea of a non-Christian within the British royal family meant such a relationship between the mother of the future king and an Egyptian Muslim would not be tolerated. In Muhammad Al-Fayed's view, which he repeated in court at the inquest in February of 2008, Prince Philip, the Prince of Wales, Dinah's sister, Lady Sarah McCorkadale and numerous others were all involved in a plot to kill the princess and his son. Jeffrey Steinberg of the Executive Intelligence Review, EIR, a publican of the American Lyndon LaRouche movement, has also put forward theories that the Prince of Wales was murdered by the security services under the instructions of Prince Philip. An article in the Daily Telegraph in 1998 reporting the EIR conspiracy theories alleged earlier links between the EIR and Al-Fayed, while Francis Ween reported the following year that Al-Fayed's spokesman had advised journalists to contact Steinberg. Alfoy had made the assertion in television interviews that the couple were going to announce their engagement on the Monday after the crash, on the 1st of September 1997. Operation Pageant commented that an announcement of such magnitude from the Princess of Wales would have been a substantial media event of worldwide interest and would have required significant preparation. No evidence was found that any such preparation had been made. CCTV evidence shown at the inquest indicates that Dodie left Alberta Raposi Jewels on the 30th of August with nothing more than a catalogue. Raposi said in 2003 that the ring had been placed on Diana's finger in a St. Tropez hotel and was being resized for future collection in Paris, but later admitted to writer Martin Gregory that he had received legal papers from Alfayette, a client for more than 20 years. Alfayette said the couple chose the ring in Monte Carlo and Diodia picked it up in Paris the day before he died after it had been altered. This statement of Alfayette was contradicted by statements of Claude Roulette, a shop assistant, at the, and the CCTV footage. A CCTV recording demonstrated that a ring had been selected by a Ritz Hotel official. It was bought by 
by Muhammad al-Fayed after the couple's death. A few short hours before the crash, on the afternoon of the 30th of August, Diana's journalist friend Richard Kay received a call on his mobile phone from Diana in which she asked about what was likely to appear in the days following Sunday papers about her. During this call, she made no mention of any announcement she intended to make. More revealing was a statement given by Diana's elder sister, Lady Sarah McCorkudale, who testified that in a phone conversation with Diana on the Friday the 29th of August, Diana spoke about Dodie Fayad in a manner that gave her sister the impression the relationship was on stony ground. Statements from other friends and confidants Diana spoke to in the week before her death, including her butler Paul Burrell, her friend Lady Annabelle Goldsmith, and her spiritual advisor Rita Rogers, were unanimous that she was firm about not wanting to get engaged or married to anyone at that point in her life. A week before she died, the princess had told Goldsmith, and I quote, I need marriage like a rash on my face. End quote. Diana's former private secretary Patrick Jefferson said to the BBC in reaction to the publication of the Operation Pageant Report in December of 2006 that her facial expression in the CCTV footage of her at the Paris Ritz on her final evening with Dodi Fayad was one she would wear when she was disgruntled with the situation. However, CCTV images released on October 6, taken just minutes before their death, show a relaxed Diana and Dodi affectionately holding hands. An inquiry witness was Hassan Khan, a Muslim head surgeon of Pakistani origin based in London who had a relationship with Diana for two years had explored the possibility of marriage with him. This had been met with no opposition from the royal family and Prince Charles had even given his blessing. Khan stated that he had received some racist hate mail from members of the public because of the relationship but had no reason to take what was said in the hate mail seriously. He also stated that he felt the relationship was not opposed by the royal family or any other branch of the British government including the security services. Paul Burrell stated that Diana was not over her breakup with Khan at the time of her death. It was also pointed out that Dodie and Diana had only met just under seven weeks before the crash at Alfred's villa in St. Tropez on July 14th, meaning there were only 47 days from their first meeting until the night of the crash. Of those days, their schedules permitted them to be together for an absolute maximum of 35 days. From analysts of Diana's actual movements, it is likely they had spent approximately 23 days together before the crash. John McNamara, a former senior detective at Scotland Yard, headed Alfred's own investigation for five years from 1997 onwards. Cross-examined at the inquest on 14th of February, he conceded that he found no evidence of a criminal conspiracy to kill the princess, or that she was engaged or pregnant at the time of her death, apart from the claims Al-Fayed had relayed to him. In January of 2004, the former coroner of the Queen's household, Dr. John Burton, said in an interview with the Times that he attended a post-mortem examination of the princess's body at Fulton Mortuary, where he personally examined her womb and found her not to be pregnant. In an effort to examine the assertions made by Al-Fayed, Operation Pageant had signed Tests carried out on pre-transfusion blood found in the footwell of the seat in the wrecked Mercedes the Princess of Wales occupied at the time of the crash. This blood was found to have no trace of the HCG hormone associated with pregnancy. The inquiry also extensively interviewed friends of Diana's who were in close contact with her in the weeks leading up to her death. The evidence obtained from these witnesses was of a very sensitive nature and most, if not, most of it was not included in Operation Pageant's criminal investigation report. However, it was reported that friends said she was in a normal menstrual cycle and there was no no evidence she was using contraception. Al-Fayed's persistence in, in asserting Diana was pregnant led him to get members of his staff to tell the media that on their final day together, Diana and his son had visited a villa he owned in Paris to choose a room for the baby. While the couple had indeed visited the villa, the circumstances of the visit were exaggerated to say it had lasted two hours and that it was in the presence of a prominent Italian interior designer. A security guard at the villa, Ruben Mural, felt uncomfortable lying about the matter and sold his story to the son, stating that the visit lasted just under 30 minutes 
Records and was not in the company of any interior designer. He provided stills from CCTV to prove this and said that he had been in the presence of Dan and Dodie for the entirety of their visit, with them having no conversation about them coming to live at the villa. He later resigned from Alfred's employment and initiated an employment tribunal for constructive dismissal after Alfred successfully sued him for breach of contract because of the CCTV images he supplied to the Sun. Senior members of Alfred's staff made derogatory comments about Mural and Trevor Reese Jones in their statements to Operation Pageant. In 2004, a Channel 4 documentary, The Diana Conspiracy, claimed that the butler of the villa, who in a June 1998 interview with the ITV documentary Diana's Secrets Behind the Crash, claimed to have shown the couple around with their intent being to live there, was not even present at the villa on that day as he was on vacation. Al-Fayed first claimed that the Princess of Wales was pregnant at the time of her death to the Daily Express in May of 2001. If it is true, it is strange that he sat upon this important information for three and a half years, end quote, said Scott Baker at the inquest. Talking about CCTV images, the absence of CCTV images showing the Mercedes journey from the hotel to the crash site has been frequently cited as evidence of an organized conspiracy. According to the independent newspaper in 2006, there were more than 14 CCTV cameras in the Pont de Alma underpass, though none of the recorded footage of the fatal collision. Judge Herve Stephan was appointed as examining magistrate in this case on the 2nd of September 
we've seen this in Hollywood movies, nudged the car a little bit, the car careened off and smashed straight into the pillar. The thing is, there's no security footage that was taken within the tunnel, so we don't know if the Fiat Uno guided Diana's car with Henri Paul not being able to move out of the way and the Fiat Uno guided the car straight into the concrete pillar. With no security footage, we can't rule it in, we can't rule it out. And the fact that the Fiat Uno was never found, even though police attempted to find it, also is a little bit suspicious to me that, and I find it kind of hard to believe that this Fiat Uno just suddenly disappeared. It's really interesting that this car was there one minute, gone the next, you know what I mean? Here one minute, gone the next. Muhammad Al-Fayed, who was Dodi Fayed's father, alleged in his July 2005 statement to Operation Pageant, which was investigating the conspiracy theories surrounding Diana's death, and at other times, that the white Fiat Uno was being used by MI6 as a means of causing the Mercedes to swerve and thereby crash in, into the side of the tunnel, as I just said. Al-Fayed further alleged that the Fiat Uno was owned by a French photojournalist named Jean-Paul James Anderson, a security services agent, according to Al-Fayed, who had photographed Diana while she was at his villa in St. Tropez in July of 1997. Anderson's death in May 2000, Al-Fayed claimed, was either due to guilt over what he had done or because he was assassinated by the French or British security services to silence him. Operation Pageant found that the white Fiat Uno Anderson owned was an unroadworthy condition, being nine years old at the time, with some 325,000 kilometres on the odometer, suggesting that the car had been driven 27,000 miles per annum and had not been maintained for several years prior. Anderson's neighbours confirmed the veracity of this evidence. Anderson had sold the car in October of 1997. Operation Pageant concluded it was extremely unlikely due to the car's condition and the fact that Anderson had so openly disposed of it that it was the one at the scene of the crash in Paris. French police examined Anderson's car as part of the effort to trace the one that had come into contact with the Mercedes with a view to prosecuting the driver for failing to render assistance and had reached the same conclusion. The French police spent a year after the crash searching for the vehicle and eliminated over 4,000 white Fiat Unos from their inquiry. Operation Pageant decided it would be unlikely that renewed inquiries would identify the vehicle involved. As such, a long period had elapsed since the crash. It concluded the threat of prosecution for a custodial offence probably deterred the driver from coming forward at that time. A retired major in the French brigade, criminale Jean-Claude Mules, gave evidence to the inquest in February 2008. Anderson had been interviewed by French police in February of 1988 and had been able to provide documentary evidence about his movements on the previous 30th and 31st of August, which had satisfied them that he could not have been the driver of the Fiat Uno involved. These demonstrated that Anderson could have only been at his home in Le Juniers, 177 miles, 285 kilometers from Paris at the time of the crash. Elizabeth, his widow, said at the London inquest in February of 2008 that her husband had been at home in bed with her at the time of the crash. Also, I do apologize, ladies and gentlemen, throughout this, there's going to be a lot of French names and I'm not very good at pronunciation, so I do apologize if I get all of these names wrong or I don't pronounce them very well. I do apologize. Now we move on to Anderson's suicide. So Anderson died in May of 2000. The official verdict was suicide, though I don't think so, because his suicide was extremely suspicious, and I don't think that he actually committed suicide. I think that he was suicided, meaning that somebody killed him and then tried to make it look like a suicide. There is no way in hell that you will ever get me to be convinced that Anderson's suicide was his actual suicide. It was so bizarre the way that he was killed. So the official verdict was suicide. His body was found in a black, burnt-out BMW in a forest near the town of Nantes, near Milieu in southern France. Anderson's death was attributed to problems in his private life. The 2008 inquest into the death of the Princess of Wales heard that evidence was uncovered from his friends and associates that prior to his death he had talked of suicide by pouring petrol in a car and lighting a cigar, as noted by Richard 
Richard Horwell QC for the Metropolitan Commissionaire. The pageant report states that when the car was found, Anderson's body was in the driver's seat of the car and his head was detached and lay between the front seats. There was a hole in his left temple and the French pathologist concluded this hole was caused by the intense heat of the fire rather than, for example, a bullet wound. I have no idea how on earth they came to think that. I mean, I understand that in crematoriums and stuff that you can have heads that do explode and normally that's from the intense pressure that's built up inside of the skull and it will make it explode but I don't know how the French pathologist concluded that because I don't know that there were ever any tests done to make sure that there wasn't any residue from a gunshot or whether because of the fire that would have destroyed that type of evidence I'm not a forensic science examiner or a forensic scientist so I don't know whether that could have been done but I find it interesting that the French pathologist just concluded the hole was caused by the intense heat of the fire and how they ruled out that it was a bullet wound. Again, I don't know much about how bodies cope under intense heat, so it's possible, but it seems a little bit weird to me that there's a hole in his head and they just naturally assume it's from the fire like why would you not think that somebody may have killed him the other interesting thing was operation pageant found no evidence anderson was known to any security service and contrary to al fayed's claims his death was thoroughly investigated by french police however and this was the really really weird thing about that though right although the whereabouts of the car keys has never been explained so the car keys to my understanding were never found they weren't in the car with Anderson and they just disappeared and nobody knows where they are and nobody has ever been able to explain how they just disappeared or why they were never found. So if Anderson drove the car there or his burnt out BMW there and he decided okay I'm going to light myself on fire what, where was the gasoline like there's several things about this suicide that really stick out to me one is there's I don't really know if the cause for the fire was ever ascertained as far as I know the second thing I find really weird is that the car keys are never found and the third one's a bullet hole in it or the, the hole in his head which they say was made by the fire if this was a legitimate suicide the car keys would, would have been either found in the car they would have been found around him I find it weird that his car keys just disappeared I find it very hard to believe that he would have just lost his car keys and then decided to set himself on fire. It just, it, it's such a bizarre suicide. And I mean, I've, I've researched a lot of cases where suicides are the main contributing factor and some of the most bizarre suicides, as you will hear throughout this season's podcast episodes. And this has to be one of the most weirdest ones that I have ever seen. And it's really weird and bizarre how they just suddenly claimed, oh, it's a suicide. But yet you've got these contributing factors that point to another kind of direction by saying well no we can't really say that this is just a suicide because there's several contributing factors that make it seem as if it's not just a suicide so I have a very very hard time believing that Anderson just killed himself under the circumstances in my heart I say that he didn't and in my mind I have a lot of questions because it just doesn't seem normal to me that he would just go to a forest lose his car keys set himself on fire and he ends up with a hole in the head it it really seems really strange to me. The other thing was there was a break-in at his former workplace in June 2000 and it was alleged to have been carried out by security services but was found to be unconnected to his death and no items related to him was stolen which again that is really kind of bizarre that you would have a break-in at your former workplace and yet it's carried out allegedly by security services even though the French police claimed that and Operation Pageant also claimed that he was not known to any security services so what are security services doing breaking into his 
workplace or his former workplace. A lot of bizarre things about Anderson, and I, I don't fully believe that he was not involved. I do believe in some case he was involved, and I think he was silenced. I think that he was actually murdered, and they made his death look like a suicide, although I think they did a pretty bad job of it, whoever did it, because there is questions, um, and I, I have a lot of questions about that. Then we come to another individual by the name of Lee Van Thanth. It has been reported by numerous publications that the white Fiat Uno belonged to Lee Van Thanth, who was a 22-year-old taxi driver at the time of the crash. Thanth owned a white Fiat Uno identical to the one that struck the Princess of Wales Mercedes. Georges and Sabine Duzone identified Thanth as the agitated man they had seen driving the car, end quote. Thanth has always refused interview requests, which, again, I find interesting, because if you've got nothing to hide, why would you refuse an interview request? I mean, you're innocent until proven guilty. I get that. But it's kind of weird that you would refuse an interview request. I mean, you could look at it as a double-edged sword. You could look at it as you don't want to have allegations thrown at you on a public stage, and then people are going to go, oh, yeah, but you might have been the guy that drove that car. Because the thing about accusations is they will stick no matter what. So it doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. That accusation will stick with you forever. So it doesn't matter what it, what public opinion of you is or the political opinion or whatever. If people decide that you're guilty, it doesn't matter what the hell you do. They're going to go, yeah, you were the guy that drove the white field. Oh, no, even though the police cleared you in this investigation, we think you still had something to do with it. So I can understand why he's always refused interview requests. However, it does make him look guilty. So you can't really win in that aspect. It's like when you go to a police station and you lawyer up immediately. Some police detective is going to go, oh, well, if you want a lawyer immediately, then you're guilty because innocent people wouldn't ask for a lawyer straight away. That's not strictly true. Some people just want to be guided through a police interview so they don't say the wrong thing and make themselves accidentally look guilty, which has been done before. So the fact that he has refused interview requests by itself doesn't prove that he's guilty of anything and doesn't say that he's guilty of anything. But at the same time, it sort of does show that he may or may not have some way been involved or maybe he just doesn't like the limelight. There's many different ways you can look at it. I won't harp on it too much, but I it does make him look a little bit guilty. But then again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with refusing an interview if you don't feel comfortable giving an interview. However, it does make you look guilty, unfortunately, which is the, the side effect of that. In 2006, Thant's father said his son had re-sprayed his white Fiat Uno red hours after the crash, allegedly waking up his mechanic brother in the night to help him. Following tests, it was concluded that the car could have been involved in the murder, end quote, but Thant's involvement in the crash was ruled out by French police because he said he was at work on the night in question. It was later uncovered that he had left work early that night and could have been at the scene of the crash, and multiple witnesses recall seeing a man matching his description exit the tunnel seconds after the crash. See, all of this makes him look really guilty to me. I mean, the fact that you've re-sprayed your car red so that it can't be identified, that's really guilty, although we're taking his father's word for that. And then it's interesting because he claims that he worked on the night in question, but yet it turns out later that he left early. He looks really guilty to me, Lee Van Thanth does, because that is a little bit weird. That you, Why would you lie about something like that? Oh, I was at work, and then it turns out later, well, no, you actually left early. That, that makes you look incredibly guilty to me. However, there was an, an alternative explanation for the cause of the crash. That is that there has been reports of a bright white flash just before the car entered the tunnel, blinding the driver. Richard Tomlinson made this allegation at the inquiry, but the veracity of his evidence was found a little bit wanting. It was found by the authorities that three eyewitnesses at the scene of the crash claimed to see a bright flash of light before the crash. And I'm going to butcher this name, so I do apologize. Francos... 
Livestry, originally Frank Hoes Levi, made a clear specific claim that he saw a bright flash, but his three statements to the authorities were in conflict with each other. Both the French detectives investigating the crash and later the officers who worked on Operation Pageant rejected his evidence with the Mercedes behind him. He claimed to have seen a flash in his rearview mirror and recounted other elements of what he saw while he was negotiating the difficult bend out of the tunnel. Crucially, however, his testimony was directly contradicted by his then wife who was in the passenger seat next to him. However, eyewitness Brian Anderson, an American tourist, told detectives that he too saw a bright flash, which is kind of hard to contradict somebody if you've got two people that are saying the same story. If it's two people saying the same story with different outcomes, yeah, okay, obviously you've got two different witnesses who saw two different things, but if you've got two witnesses that are saying consistently, I saw this, I saw this, without any prompting or anything like that, and they're two completely stranger witnesses to one another that have never met each other before, that kind of leads you to believe that, yes, there is something to this story, because two people seeing the same thing, there's definitely something to this. French police in 1997 were aware of Levistri's conviction in Rowan during 1989 for dishonesty and a subsequent prison sentence, and he was not thought by them to be a reliable witness. Television documentaries produced by Channel 4 in 2004 and the BBC in 2006 both raised this issue. He appeared as a witness at the British Inquiry via a video link in October of 2007. Diana's Secrets Behind the Crash, which was made on the 3rd of June 1998, an ITV program presented by Nicholas Owen, then ITN's royal correspondent, gave enough weight to the claim of Levistri's that 93% of viewers polled by the Mirror newspaper just after the broadcast believed that there had been a bright flash of light at the time of the crash. The detail of eyewitness testimony was thoroughly reviewed and Operation Pageant officers succeeded in uncovering two new witnesses. Other eyewitness testimony made little reference to the appearance of any inexplicable flashes at the crash site. Several witnesses who would be expected to have seen a blinding flash made no reference to to one. In any event, the detailed crash reconstruction revealed that the chain of events that led to the car unavoidably colliding with the pillar started well before it was at the mouth of the tunnel where the flash is alleged to have occurred. Furthermore, a strobe light of the type that was alleged to have been used is so powerful that a flash emitted from it would have been bright enough to illuminate a very wide area. It would have likely blinded not only Paul but also the driver of the white Fiat Uno, the pursuing paparazzi and the witnesses standing at the roadside. The Operation Pageant report concluded that the alleged flash did not happen. Well, that's kind of difficult to say because even though you've discounted one witness, you've got another one that doesn't have a background that includes a criminal element. So the thing that I find interesting, if you've got witnesses that say they saw a bright flash of light, but then your report concludes that there was no flash of light. Well, well, riddle me this, what was the flash of light in the tunnel then? If there was no flash of light in the tunnel, but yet witnesses saw a flash of light in the tunnel, what was the bright flash that they saw? I mean, it wouldn't have to be a strobe light. It could just be someone flashing flashed a torch from a moving car into someone's eyes. I mean, all you have to do is distract the driver long enough with a light that he can't see. Boom, crashes straight into the colliding pillar. So I'm not 100% sure that there wasn't a strobe light or some sort of flashlight or some sort of light that blinded Henri Paul for him long enough for him to crash into the pillar. I don't believe Operation Pageant's report that there was no flash because if all these witnesses came forward and said, yeah, there was a, a flash, well, it's kind of hard to say that there wasn't if you've got all these people that said that there was. How are you going to describe credit all of these witnesses. It's kind of contradictory, really. There was also some media discussion in April 2006 suggesting that Diana was a faithful seatbelt user and therefore the fact that both her and Dodie's seatbelts either failed or were not used was sinister and might suggest sabotage. Her sister Lady Sarah McCordwell later said that Diana was religious in putting on her seatbelt, end quote. Other sources question if she did in fact use a seatbelt all the time, as was suggested. Quote, what is certain is if she was not wearing a seatbelt 
seatbelt, and this made things worse. We would like to think that if she had been wearing a seatbelt, we'd have been able to save her, end quote, said Professor André Leinhardt, who reviewed the emergency services response for the French government investigation of the incident. CNN did an analysis of the crash in early September of 1997 and concluded that the injuries would have been minor had the occupants been wearing seatbelts. The conclusions were provisional owing to limited data about the specific Mercedes model and the limousine was not sold in the US. Analysts of the wreckage of the car, repatriation to England in 2005 by a forensic accident investigator from the Transport Research Laboratory of 35 years experience on behalf of Operation Pageant, found that all the seatbelts were in good working order except for the right rear one which was attached to the seat Diana occupied. Follow-up inquiries with French investigators found they had declared all the seatbelts operational at an examination in October of 1998, suggesting the damage to the seatbelt took place after the crash. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, the fact of the matter is it would be easy for someone to sabotage a seatbelt and then for them to kind of cover that up. I, I don't know, it seems a little bit coincidental that the French investigators all, all of a sudden say that they may have damaged it after the crash. I don't know. That seems a little bit dodgy to me that it, that apparently the French police said they were all all working order and then you know this forensic accidents investigator for the transport research laboratory gets the car back and then it's like well no it's not actually in good working order and I mean this guy works for the transport research laboratory so if he says it's broken you know that it's broken. The British inquest verdict explicitly stated that the lack of seatbelts had caused or contributed to the deaths of both Dodie and Diana. Another little bit of a prickly subject was the transport to the hospital so the first call to the emergency services switchboard was logged at 12.26am. The SAMU ambulance carrying the princess arrived at the Ptai Selpateri Hospital at 2.06am. This length of time has prompted much conspiracy-related comment. The period between the crash and the arrival at the hospital takes into account the following. The time taken for emergency services to arrive, the time taken by the Saparis Prompers Fire Service of Paris to remove Diana from the damaged car, and the actual journey time from the crash site to the hospital. Police officer Sebastian Dores and Lino Gagladorn were the first emergency officials to arrive at the scene at around 12.30am. Sergeants Xavier Gorman and Philippe Boyer of the Sapeurs Pompers arrived at around 12.32am. Dr. Jean-Marc Martino, a specialist in anesthetics and intensive care treatment and the doctor in charge of the SAMU ambulance, arrived at around 12.40am. Dinah was removed from the car at 1am. She then went into cardiac arrest. Following external cardiopulmonary resuscitation, her heart started beating again. She was moved to the SAMU ambulance at 1.18am. The ambulance departed the crash scene at 1.41am and arrived at the hospital at 2.06am, a journey time of approximately 26 minutes. This included a stop at the Gardiastrolitz ordered by Dr. Martino because of the drop in blood pressure of the Princess of Wales and the necessity to deal with it. The ambulance was travelling slowly on his express instructions. The doctor was concerned about Diana's blood pressure and the effects on her medical condition and deceleration and acceleration. The SAMU ambulance carrying Diana Diana passed the Hotel Dieu Hospital on the Lille de la Cite en route to the Petit Salpetri Hospital. The decision to transfer to the Petit Salpetri Hospital was taken by Dr. Mark Lije, who was on dispatch duty in SAMU control on that night. In consultation with Dr. DeRossi, who was at the scene, the Petit Salpetri Hospital was the main reception centre for the multiple trauma patients in Paris. The Hotel Dieu was not equipped to deal with the injuries Diana had sustained. Lije stated, and I quote, the Hotel Dieu Hospital on 
the Lee de la Sit is closer but not equipped with heart surgery teams or neurosurgical teams or teams trained to take patients with multiple injuries, end quote. Lejay was also aware that Professor Bruno Ryu was on duty at the Petite Salpetri that night and was particularly skilled to treat her injuries. Dr. Jean-Marc Martino supported this view. Now, Muhammad El-Fayed alleged that Diana's body was deliberately embalmed shortly after her death to ensure that any pregnancy test at the postmortem would produce a false result. Operation Pageant found that on the 31st of August 1997 was a very hot day in Paris. Diana's body had been stored in an empty room adjacent to the emergency room where she had been treated at the Petite Salpetri Hospital as the mortuary was on the other side of the hospital grounds and some distance away. Dry ice and air conditioning units were placed in the room to keep it cool but appeared to have had little success. Now Diana's two sisters and Prince Charles were scheduled to view the body later that afternoon before bringing it back to the United Kingdom. President Jacques Chirac and his wife also wished to pay their respects. This meant there was very little time to repair the body for viewing and it was deemed unacceptable to present Diana's body to her family and the President of France in the state it was in. Faced with this situation the hospital staff decided to press ahead with the embalming with only verbal authority from Madame Martin Montelli, the local superintendent of police, who assured Jean Macron that everything would be in order. Under French law, paperwork must be completed before undertaking the embalming of any corpse likely to be subject to a post-mortem. This paperwork was completed, but only after the embalming had been carried out, giving rise to allegations of suspicious circumstances. The allegations were made despite there being no way the hospital staff could have known whether or not Diana was pregnant as a pregnancy test would have been irrelevant to a post-crash treatment and accordingly was not carried out. Now, this is where the SAS conspiracy theories come from, and this is the last kind of conspiracy theory related to Diana's death. The court-martial of SAS sniper Danny Nightingale led to a letter written by witness Soldier N and sent to his in-laws coming to wider attention. So, Soldier N, Nightingale's former roommate, was imprisoned for illegally hiding firearms and ammunition. On the 17th of August 2013, the Metropolitan Police announced they were reviewing evidence that Soldier N had boasted that the SAS were behind the death of Princess Diana. The parents of Soldier N's estranged wife reportedly wrote to the SAS's commanding officer claiming Soldier N had told his wife the unit arranged Diana's death and it was covered up. The information was reportedly passed on to Scotland Yard by the Royal Military Police. However, Scotland Yard stressed that this information would not lead to a reinvestigation and they were examining its relevance and credibility. They also confirmed that Prince Charles and Mohammed Al-Fayed were being kept informed as a preliminary examination progressed. At the end of November 2013, Scotland Yard ended its study of the SAS allegations and released a statement, and I quote, The Metropolitan Police Service has scoped the information and is in the process of drawing up conclusions which will be communicated to the families and interested parties first before any further comment can be made, end quote. On the 16th of September, it emerged from Sky News reports that there was no credible evidence that the SAS was involved in the death of the princess and the others, and thus no reason to reopen the investigation. That's all for this week. Join me next week for part three.